Hi, I'm Shari De Silva, curator of the Jeffrey Bauer Art and Archival Collections at the Lunaganga Trust. This podcast is part of the Bauer 100 program, a celebration of the architect's 100th birthday. Jeffrey Bauer was famously silent about his work. There are only a handful of records where he opens up about his influences, routines, and practice. He also rarely saved material like correspondence or sketches, which often form the core parts of an archive. The Oral Histories Project tries to fill this void by collecting the memories, stories, and experiences of Bawa's friends, clients, and colleagues. Thank you for tuning in. Today's speaker is Chana Daswatha, the current chairperson of the Jeffrey Bauer and Lunaganga Trusts. Chana worked with Jeffrey in his later years, starting with the landmark project, which is the Kandalama Hotel. He was also an equal partner in Jeffrey Bauer Associates, which was founded after the closure of Edwards, Reed and Beck. Chana, together with Murad Ismail, then went on to set up the practice MICD Associates. The practice is responsible for many iconic buildings, both in Sri Lanka and overseas, most recently having completed the renovation of the Benthota Beach Hotel. He is the author of the publications Sri Lanka Style, Tropical Design and Architecture and Colonial Period Furniture in the Jeffrey Bauer Collection. Channa recalls with humour and detail the experience of being a young architect in Jeffrey's office while shedding light on Jeffrey's process of design, including the theatricality of his conception of space and place. But I'll start with some of the questions that we ask everyone. Um, so what is your first memory of Jeffrey Bauer? Yes, that's a question quite a few people ask. We were taken to Nunganga by Angelina when uh, we had done our measure drawings. That was the reward, a visit to Lunganga. And I remember it was the last trip of the evening we'd been to, we'd been playing in the pool at Club Villa and various places, got to brief, and Lunganga was the evening thing. And I still remember my jaw dropping when I saw that view across um, the, the, the thing right up to the, the stupa. The stupa could be seen at the time. Right? quite well. And Jeffrey was there, he was kind of a sort of figure who was there against the great Jeffrey Bauer and I remember our whole batch, myself, Anuma, Shadi, all these friends of mine, um, were very excited about the Vibhaka. And I kind of vaguely remember being presented, like in some kind of, you know, like some demitant at the ball or something like that, being presented to Jeffrey by Angela and Jeffrey, he did this drawing. And I had done the drawing or our, our group had done the drawing of the Sima Malak as our major drawing project. And uh, Jeffrey, so Jeffrey, he said that looked really rather good, you know, that. I kind of wait to remember that. What I do remember most though, was that once we sort of had walked around the garden and all of that, we all sort of settled on the sort of terrace, the, 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 the eastern, let's say the western terrace with the two sculptures and things. Jeffrey was seated somewhere on the chair. And Somehow it sort of happened late in the evening, the dogs were there, and then Anoma and I started howling like dogs. Oh, Jeffrey thought this was hilarious. So I remember Jeffrey actually as someone who was just, I mean, that was my first memory of Jeffrey, of sitting there laughing and me and Anoma howling like a dog. Uh, at Lodugaga, that, that's, I mean, I know it sort of sounds ridiculous, but um, it, so that, in many ways, sort of defined for me the man. I mean, he was this very serious, very glamorous, very beautiful place. But there was also sort of, you know, he allowed for this kind of frivolity. I mean, we were all seated there, and I, I, I know how it happened, but it just happened like that. And then, and then the dog started howling. So it was quite amusing, the whole episode. And I don't think at that time I even thought I would be working. So how did you end up at the RNB? Well, not ERNB, at the, at the practice. ERNB was still kind of vaguely around. Um, but for me, it was uh, going to London. And somehow, Angela had given Jeffrey's number, my number to Jeffrey, had said, you know, Chandler, Jeffrey might call. 
when he comes. So while I was there the first summer, he called me and said, oh, shall we meet? And Angela also happened to be there that summer. So we all met, and that's another wonderful memory of going to Chiswick Gardens, the Chiswick, 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 Chiswick House, and sort of, you know, going through the garden. And I think I've written that thing where he uses me as, for the first time, he begins to use me as a, as a, as a walking stick. Uh, because the grounds were so sort of very wobbly and, and he was sort of... And then he sort of made this mad dash with Milroy, who was also there. Uh, and Milroy apparently used to come occasionally for, for summer and work with Jeffrey a little bit. But he was very much a sort of anchor for Jeffrey in London as well. And, uh, and we dashed off to, um, uh, to Brighton to see David Robson. Uh, so that was that first time I met David Robson as well. Uh, and I remember that very, very clearly. Uh, Jeffrey in the front seat, Milroy driving, Angela and me at the back, Angela giggling away because that's what he did in those days. And uh, driving off on the M3 down to Brighton. And then we kind of, I don't even, did David give us dinner? I can't remember. But we were there and there was this conversation and various things happening, talk of various stuff. And then the following summer, he called me and very clearly said, I'd like you to come and have lunch with us. And that was in South Edward Square, where he used to stay with his friends, Gene and Krista. Um, so I, so the day he wanted me to come for lunch was the day that my exams were finishing. And I had to rush off and had promised my friend, my, I had promised Anoma, who was then at MIT, and she had come for the summer. And we were meeting in Paris uh, for a few days before I set off for for Spain, I was doing some research for my dissertation. And, uh, and of course, this is the great Jeffrey Bauer speaking. I mean, he was still very much a big Jeffrey Bauer for me. Although I had met him a few times socially and we laughed about things, but he was still Jeffrey Bauer. So he said, oh my God, how do I do this? So I remember him. It was called, it was called uh, Complex Buildings, which was a fourth paper. And I remember saying, I was, Pretty good at it. So I wrote the paper. As soon as I finished it, we could leave the exam hall, rushed off, pick up, picked up my bags from the hostel, took the underground to Kensington, rushed off for lunch, and then pretended everything was calm. And then sat there. Christoph had made this fabulous pasta and stuff. And that's where Jeffrey said, oh, we are building a hotel. This site, look at it. And there was a whole group of picture, pictures of the Kandanama site. And uh, for me, it was utterly nostalgic because I had been a Cub Scout and uh, camped there on the banks of the thing. So having two and a half years in England, rosy spectacles, nothing is more wonderful than home. And you see these beautiful pictures. I mean, Kandalama is beautiful. And for me, I always had this affinity to the dry zone. It was like, oh my God, this is fabulous. And amongst it was also the newly converted tuk-tuk which Jeffrey had cut up the top and, and I thought it was all very... So the whole thing was exotic. I mean, you know, when you come home, I mean, I'm sure you have that feeling. It's like there's something very special about going home. And, and going home with this person saying, come and work for me. I mean, they couldn't have been great. Please join us when you finish. And I said, absolutely, yes. And then I said, I just need to catch the train at three o'clock. <laughs> oh, then you would go, he said. So very quickly, God loved the pasta and off I went to catch the train from Victoria. Yeah, I sort of turned up. Um, I remember on the 1st or 7th or whatever of November. And the first thing he said, I come with my father. And the first thing he said was, oh, go away for a week and come back. And uh, very odd, but that was it. That's what I did. I just went off for a week and came back and never stopped. I mean, really, I mean, except um, when I then, after about a year and a half, I just put my foot down and said, Jeffrey, I'm actually going on holiday. Oh, no, you can't do that. I am. And I had planned to go to Tibet. And then he couldn't stop. He kept asking me questions of what was it like. Because obviously he was the inveterate traveler. By then he couldn't travel as much. And he just loved the idea. I mean, he hated the idea of me going because obviously he missed out on one person in the office. So that's how I kind of ended up in ERNB. I mean, uh, it was Jeffrey inviting me to say, Come and work. I suppose I was also pretty face. Then. <laughs> but I think it was really about the test that he did at Chiswick House. Perfect height to complement his ivory walking stick. And really for the next six years, that was really my job. 
in many ways. So when you started it was you were working entirely on Kandalama? Yes, so we, no no not really. The first job when I turned up, Kandalama was the first site visit. By then Sumangala was also first there in, in, in the in the job after his well, I mean he had Sumangala in so when I left for London, the university had closed. I had done my bachelor's kind of under curfew. The university had closed, and, the, and really, I have to say, you know, people like Shirani Balasuri and Chris Tisaram, fantastic teachers, they risked their lives to turn up at university to conduct exams. They said, go home, finish your stuff, put your exam and go on. But JVP had pushed it, and the government had closed the universities, but they still conducted the exam, so we could get out. I, I mean, it's just fantastic, those stories at that time. And Sumangala had then, of course, had to go home. He was in second year or something. And that's when he actually did all the drawings for Lunuganga. He will probably tell you that. So then he went back to uni. And then when I joined in 91, Sumangala had also just finished his part one and joined the office. So both of us were sent off with Milroy, I think, for the first time. And we went off to Kandalama site. And Milroy had this extraordinary ability to drive so badly and so fast. But he thought he was the best driver in the world. God bless him, he's gone. Well. Um, and we'd just gone for the day. And on the way back, I still remember that Sumangala and me, I was ill for some reason. And I was lying in the back seat, Sumangala on the passenger seat, Milroy driving away. And bang, something went. And I just like hit the roof or something. And he'd hit the bottom of the car on the, the road was being built there. I mean, Dumbler Road was not nothing like it is now. I mean, just a little narrow path. And they were just putting the first layer of tarmac for the first time in its history. And they had done all the um, telecom boxes. And Milroy, of course, didn't see this higher telephone box. Oh, my God. And, and, and the car was, and the, the front axle was totally twisted like that. This was our first site visit from, from Chetri Power practice to the Kandala site. And it was really hilarious, and I sort of, you know, came out. And fortunately, it happened right, right outside my father's, at the time he was still working in the, in the CTB, and his father's accountant's house in Kurunagala. So we kind of said, oh, wow, that's, that's Uncle Mohan's house, so let's go. So we trudged along. And Uncle, oh, what happened, Puta? And then he said, oh, no, no, no problem. I'll get someone to drop you at Amma. So that night, we went and turned up at my mother's, stayed the night. And so this was crazy, and this, of course, went on because... Um, and so we did, between site visits, we did one important project, and that was one of what David used to call the $10,000 projects. It was for Bintan Island in Indonesia, and we have the project drawings for Bintan uh, Really quite beautiful drawings, I think, we all had done and so on. And, um, and uh, so that was the project that was done, but of course Kandalama was happening on one side. Uh, but because we had to have it set out and so on, so most of us setting out meetings and stuff like that were happening. And Sumangala and I have wonderful, wonderful memories of, of the site and uh, with nothing there. And um, setting up the building with this lovely Mr. Bellana, who was our surveyor, take his shirt off in the evening. It was very hot. We had to go around and whatever. So we set up the building and then one weekend Jeffrey turned up and he had to be carried on a litter, which was made of a chair with two bamboos and the same sort of picture that you have in the bamboo and I think, but he was carried and we have some pictures somewhere in color. Taken onto the rock and then he would look at the drawings and we were only drawing it at 133 and a half or something like that scale, some strange scale, 66. So 166, which was a chain scale, which was the way we got the plan. And then we did a double the chain scale, which was 133. So this strange scale drawing. So we only worked between 133 scale drawings and one-to-one drawings. That was one inches to one to, to 12 inch drawings, which was a crazy kind of way in which we worked. The whole project was done like that. So we set the whole building out and then Jeffrey kind of said, oh, perhaps we should move it a little bit here. And this little bit, of course, is about 50 meters on the site. And because he wanted to save a tree and a rock and all of this on the site. What was interesting about the Kangalama site was that it was already an old chain of cultivation. So we had a lot of sh low shrub where the bedrooms are now. And all the trees that you see now were planted by us. And then you had um, 
the the the, the main section where the, the public rooms are, um, where we had to cut some trees, and I remember Sumangalam protesting and saying, oh, "Can't have these trees cut." But we had to. I mean, there were three, four trees that had to get cut, and he he did his lovely little sort of tribute to them by drawing them all. <laughs> Sumangalam was sitting there while we were setting things out and drawing these trees, and and as he eventually sort of. The golf face hotel bought them the sweets or something. I don't know whether they're still there, but uh, yeah, they, they were beautiful drawings because of these trees on the, on, on the rock. And, um, yeah, it was a great time. I mean, and then by March, we laid the foundation. So we, by then we had done all of these drawings and then these were then moved to Morton, uh, Milroy's office, who had computers. And they did, I think, some computer drawings and some hand-drafted drawings, which were the technical drawings from what our drawings were, which were design drawings. So the office was then Vipula, uh, Amila, Sumangala, myself, and Dilshan. And uh, Dilshan was, of course, you know, the head, and uh, he was from Sumbawa. So I remember there's a lovely cartoon you'll find, either when it's in the archive or otherwise of uh, the first cartoon that's one when you were there, which was about telling Dilshan, please make sure you remind Jeffrey again of chocolates. So it was all about Dilshan going with the drawings and then him carrying all the bags and, uh, and then coming back to linked chocolates of dark. So very sweet little cartoon. Also. At 33rd Lane, it was different. It was a round table. I always felt that the round table, I mean, obviously everyone knew who the boss was because he sat there the, Moonstone was, so he was in the halo, right? Mm -hmm. It was quite obvious. But because we sat on a round table, our relationship with him, at least mine, he was the loveliest man to work for because never raised his voice, never raised his voice. And, and there's this one moment when he got really angry with Milroy. I can't remember what it was, but no, Jeffrey, you, know, you can't do that. And, blah, 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 blah. and I was like, I was sitting up and oh my God. Or he speaks to Jeffrey Bauer. <laughs> Jeffrey just stopped. Excuse me, he said. Got up, left the room. And Milroy was going, and see, Chan, I mean, you know, he, he, he never. Then very quickly, Amaratunga, the driver, came from the back. Chana, Sachana Mahatev, you're being called. So I went through the back. He was seated in the car smoking a cigarette. I was, so I knew I had to get in the car, and Amaratunga, and then Amaratunga drive. So he drove, I can't remember where he went, I think he went and went down Fifth Lane and went down Duplication Road and back about the local miles then, whatever, five, ten minutes. Came back, didn't say a word to me, nothing. And came back and he got off, I went through the back door, he went through the front door. When I got in, he came back again and said, very sorry, Roy, I lost my temper. Where were we? <laughs> Because obviously he was furious, but he did not want to see that he was weak, that he, he had lost his temper. And, and because he didn't raise his voice, he didn't. I don't think he knew how. But otherwise, the, the office was fantastic. And another sort of wonderful moment was when we were doing the Mowbray project, which was for the, for the Hemans group, uh, in Serendip then, for Abbas. And, um, Somehow, I think we were quite distracted doing one of these many hotels we were doing. And um, Eric and Alex were told to do a schematic. So they came very enthusiastically with their schematic and laid it out. And I knew immediately, oh my God, this is terrible, this is not going to work. That was in my mind, and Jeffrey sort of looked at it and he mm -hmm. said, oh, oh, well, perhaps you could do it like this and went on to completely give a different interpretation of how it should have been done. He never said, this is horrible, this is bad, get away. There was no sort of tearing of papers and stuff like you know, people might have done, but very gently said, perhaps you could, and they knew immediately, you could see from their faces that they'd really messed up, it didn't work. And off they went. And, 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 and that way he made working for him very, very easy. It was a hard work, there were no shortcuts, but it was easy. I mean, it was it was it was happy, and it wasn't. I mean, you weren't you weren't complaining. I mean, if you were working till ten o'clock, you knew that at seven o'clock when he said, 
would you like to direct an ice? And say, Jalti, sir, I reckon I second You knew this was 10 o'clock, we have to get finished. And I didn't ever, I didn't ever kind of find it tedious. Yes, I'm location, you had to give a call to friends and say, much I'm coming with you at 10 o'clock. But it's okay. In those days, because I suppose life was also much less stressful, our other commitments were less. Um, and we just kind of feel. Can you describe, um, maybe taking Kandami as an example, but yeah, there's that process of an idea that came from Jeffrey and how it became a building and how he conveyed it to the office? I think, the, the, for me, the best description I can do, of course, is, 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 is the Modi house. Because the way that Kandalama happened, uh, he... It was almost done in that training. I mean, but, but even off the Kandalama, I remember him talking about this idea that when you look at the site, I know exactly what should be there. And my effort is to try and convey to you what is in my mind. And it is not always 100%. And if I get to a certain level, I'm happy. And that's what it was about. And then he would say, once you draw a line on the site, then the site changes. Then you need to keep responding to that. So because I used to sort of always say, Come on, Jeffrey, we have to now do this again and again and again. And then he said, look, if I, I mean, if I knew exactly what I was doing, I wouldn't need you. And that was really quite cutting, but it's true. If he, needed, if he didn't need a drawing, and if he knew exactly what he was doing, he would just go there and instruct somebody to do this. And, um, and that was his thing. He said, look, I wouldn't need you if, if I couldn't do exactly what I was doing. I need your drawing, because the drawing is there to change, because I can't change the building. So this theory that everyone says, oh, Jeffrey Baba broke buildings, I think it, it, it's quite unfair because certainly in the six years I worked for him, he didn't break any buildings, except when a contractor had done it wrong, and very clearly wrong when he break it. Because he used the drawing. I think he used the drawing for what it should be because it was a representation of what you were going to build. And if you felt it wasn't reaching that image in your mind, then that would be scrapped or you need to change it. With ideas converting and how he sort of designed that process is quite clear in the way I remember working with him on the Modi house. Minal Modi had called Jeffrey um, from wherever she called. And, and then Jeffrey said, you can't discuss a house um, on the phone. Please send me a fax. Those were fax days. And then she said, yes, of course. And then this sort of fact starts churning out. Number 29, Golden Square, London, Southwest, whatever. And um, now, dear Mr. Baba, I would very much like to, next page, build the house with you in next page, in Delhi. And then went on for 30 pages. Just a very simple description of what and then, and, and Jeffrey took it and looked at it, and he said, Oh, she wants a house, and this is what she wants. And I think he immediately began to like the person. Because he was this sort of slight excess that I think he rather liked. And then he called her back and said, yes, I think I can do this, it'd be very interesting, but I'd like to visit the site. And the whole thing was arranged that we would go to Delhi. Now, he couldn't wait to start designing. And the process was that he would take his square wood paper place it in front of him, he had this yellow pencil. Often the office had to stop if it got lost. Usually it was sort of under the table or something. But anyway, the yellow pencil would come and there would be somebody like me sitting on the side or whatever, and then he would say, whatever he decided to design a house for this woman. He declared that she was a beautiful woman. Um, and therefore she would obviously require a certain kind of house. And when I went one afternoon, he'd sort of been doodling, and there was a little sketch on this square old paper, I think it's somewhere in the archive. And he said, I was thinking about, I said, we haven't even met her. Doesn't matter. I've been thinking about Delhi's flat, and thinking about how we can build it. And then he explained this to me, and how it was about him going to meet this woman in the house. So it was like how we would come in the car and you'd go crunch, 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 crunch over the gravel and then the car would come to a stop and then 
we would both get off the car and we'd walk up these stone steps of red sandstone. We would stand on a, a granite platform floating on a mortar of lilies. And there would be a silver door on which he would rap with his stick. And from sort of that side, he said, and it was a corridor, staff would open the window and see us and come running to open the door. And immediately, you know, we had the staff quarters and all that was sorted out. And then you open the door and across a French party field courtyard, you'd see this glimmering glass box looking out into the distance in Delhi. And this beautiful woman would walk across the courtyard to greet us. So immediately, there was a story. And then there were layers of stories, which then became the house of things that people would be doing. So the house was conceived not as a object, but as a sequence of spaces and events, or, or how I put it with my sort of space syntax background, the potential for event. So he was imagining what would happen in a house that would be lived in by this woman he had in his mind, and how she would come and take you into sitting in the beautiful glass sitting room. You kind of glimpse through on the left-hand side a door and there would be this courtyard with four flames, four fireplaces, open to sky, where you have a little table where you can have dinner for four, dinner for two, in the daily evenings, cool daily evenings, he said. And this went on and the whole house was built up around this extraordinary story of this woman he had never met. For him, this was all event. So architecture was about event. And I think the whole design process was about imagining that event. And, 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 and definitely Kandalama was also this event, how you would come on the surface of the water or the lake and then suddenly there was out of the jungle would rise this huge ramp and you wonder where it's leading you. Because in the original design you didn't have the wing, So you would not have seen any part of the hotel. You just come through the jungle. And he insisted on the narrowest of roads. In what role do you think sight played for him? Sight was all really. Sight was all about it. For him, anything that happened, it was about the potential of the sight. And I think he just... So, Delhi was a curious thing, because what then happened was he imagined Delhi was flat. So eventually when we did the design, it wasn't flat. It was actually slightly rolling hills. So, what we then did was to say, oh my goodness, that would be even better, because by can we build a fort. So he then raised the whole thing up. And then, of course, as we did develop the design, we now had so many things. I and mean, she had staff quarters, there was, there were, there were, there were uh, wine cellars and things like that, all of which then went into the basement, which then raised the whole building up and then created, so the site itself then made what the building became. Uh, and at Kandalama, he, he was quite clear. I mean, he saw the thing from the site above, so he knew exactly where this business of the saddle was because there was a high mountain going down like that, a little rock there. So he kept calling up the saddle. So he had this idea that there would be a squeeze between the high rock and, the, and the, this one on which the, the swimming pools are. So the idea was rising up. Couldn't have happened anywhere else. So site was all what it was. Site was critical to his imagination. So, yeah, so when ERB officially shot, when Janet moved to our office, at that point he had bought, uh, well, I mean, was ready to buy. And I think officially probably ended in 1992, somewhere when the transaction actually happened. As we know now, the Benthoda Beach just couldn't have happened without Dr. Kudos. There is no question. The hanging structure is just extraordinary for the time. It's just mind-blowing, 1968 or 67, to think of a structure that's actually hung on this, at the level of PM, Nervi, and all of them, they were doing having structures in concrete. And here it's used in the service of making the first vernacular-looking building. It's extraordinary that it couldn't have happened without modern technology. And that's Dr. Pullock's. I mean, Jeffrey would have had some idea. I mean, it's not like he didn't know he knew structure. He could look at it and say, could we do this? And Dr. Kudos would have done it for him. But I have a feeling, thinking on it, that that's probably why. He probably felt, let's practice under the name, so it's not me or him, or anybody else. It's Edwards within Beg. I, I think that kind of thing is true. I can quite imagine myself doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
What do you think his relationship between the modern movement, which he knew very well, and then what do you think of his relationship with them? What do I think of his relationship with the modern movement? I think he definitely embraced it, because that's what was there, that was it, that's what everyone was doing. And as you can see, it's a lot of his work. And what's curious is if you look at, look about, look at it quite interestingly, uh, quite carefully, um, he seems to kind of flit between the modern movement, concrete framework kind of structures and buildings, and this other thing that he was trying to do, to create those same things and those same ideas using local materials, skills, and labor. So I think he quite understood the, the core of modernist thinking, and that's really not about the objects they're making. They were really about, I mean, modernism, we can perhaps be said to begin at the point after this horrible, horrible war, in the Second World War, and uh, the story that Kabuzi goes and sees Apres, or one of those Flanders towns which have been completely destroyed and he has to rethink how can these people be housed very quickly and he realizes that you have to make a way in which you can make housing rather quickly and at a mass level so that these hundreds of people suffering from the war uh, can be housed. So modernism begins not to try and create a style, it begins because it wants to solve a problem and I think that core Jeffrey understood very well. And I think that was really his great contribution, that he was able to understand the core of modernism and say, look, I've got to do it here in Sri Lanka in the way I can. I need to try and, try and build in a way that the people of my country know how to build, to use materials that they're familiar with, because not because of all these other things that people align to him. I mean, you know, some scholars say that's because he was trying to sort of perpetuate and, uh, a, a sort of a class thing, uh, that's kind of, that kind of socialist thinking. Um, I don't think he was, he was thinking of those things at all. He was very simply saying, look, people are familiar with these materials. If I build modern buildings which are useful and functional with these buildings, I'm more, I'm more likely to succeed in making that structure than if I try to sort of get things that are not familiar. Whereas, you know, some others like uh, Valentine or even Minette, uh, they said they, they kind of felt that modernism was really about the new forms and the object. Uh, but Jeffrey, I think, I think Jeffrey understood the core of modernism much more than a lot of the others. Um, and while I mean, I have to admit that the first person to talk about the idea of a regional modernism is Minette, uh, she still tried to sort of establish that through using the materials of modernism, although she started to uh, later to, uh, life to begin to use local materials like tiles and stuff, the Kumaraswami house is a classic example. Uh, in Jeffrey's case, I think he knew what it was, and really from the very beginning, I mean, 1959, he's been thinking of the Enoch Silver House. He start as, starts practice in 57. And after he's built the Ina House, at about the same time, he's also making the Upali Vijayawardena House, which is a kind of block um, and then he's making, soon after that, the Steel Corporation building, which is all very sort of concrete, but the beginnings of a kind of, let's give a concession to rain, for instance, by having a roof. And then he goes on and builds the Bethel Beach, which is a whole full-blown combination of modernist technology uh, and very functional building with an extraordinary kind of framework of materials, which I think it's probably the first building where he makes a building because he feels the, the history of the materials that he's using is going to affect the way the building is conceived. So he hides the modern technology, the hanging structure, behind what appears to be this cantilevered South Asian structure, uh, very, very similar to Padmanabha for Paris. So there's a kind of, I mean, in many ways, he's, he has this very kind of very interesting relationship with modernism. He uses its, its technology and its kind of possibilities. And, and, and in the bends of the beach, I, I mean, he hides it behind something else. But without modernism, that building couldn't have happened. And without the experiments he did with the concrete buildings of the previous 
few years, the five years or so. It just couldn't have happened. Uh, so I think he used all of that to, in many ways, I like to say almost rebel against the sort of mainstream modernism and say, well, there are other ways of doing this and I'm not going to simply take on what you're saying. We can do it differently. And it's incredible that it happened here in the little tip of the Indian subcontinent. The subcontinent, which has had totally embraced the concrete and steel structures of the modernist mainstream, and that was really what it was about. I mean, they made a few concessions by the Brie Soleil and sort of said that's, different. that's similar to Rajasthan's sort of whatever, and you know, the Asian Games village and so on, tries to make those concessions and is terrible sort of structures which you get lost in and so on. And, and well, this is like a Rajasthan village, but of course a Rajasthan village you can walk through and not get lost. But the Asian Games village you constantly got lost because it was only the image that was being reproduced and not the real core. Um, whereas here, down here, you know, starting with Minette and what she said and what she wrote about, uh, we have a little rebellion. Um, uh, not so much against the modern movement, but somehow to make it different, to change it, and say there are other ways of doing it. It's kind of you know, like Jesus was to, 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 to Judaism, saying, now all this is good, but there are other ways to do it. Uh, or the Buddha was to Hinduism, and say, hmm, very, very nice, but there are other ways to do it. Jeffrey says, great, accepts it, even builds like that, and then he says there are other ways. And it's not a kind of development of, okay, I'm starting with this and becoming like this. That's an easy way to put it. And often in my conversations later on, I would try, I almost put it like that. But then you think about all the buildings that he's built and the history of Sri Lankan architecture. And you realize that, you know, he's thinking concurrently on both those lines. He's not first building Bishop's College and then building, um, that wonderful building at Ladies College, um, the, the Simon Block. It's been built concurrently. One in high modernism, which is straight out of, you know, Maxwell Fry and Jane Blue, and they, they illustrate in, in their book and so on. But they actually, interestingly, keep out Simon Block, which was built about the same time, because it is too vernacular for them. It's too nationalist for them. It's too much of the place. It didn't subscribe to this idea that there was going to be this pan-international style where the whole world was going to be similar and so on and so forth. It was a kind of, in a way, a kind of globalization of architecture that they were after. And I think people like Jeffrey resisted it. And I think good for them. And by resisting, they allowed us to be who we are. And as maybe a generation, a couple of generations after him, uh, we are much more confident in the way we are building things. Uh, using our own materials and so on. You can drop this question if you want. But do you ascribe, or what do you ascribe to the use of terms or movements like critical regionalism or tropical modernism as ways of describing his work? I think it's simply the fact that, see, an ism comes because you want to sort of, uh, to, to, to classify, right? It's like, you know, it's, 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 you know, colonial power is always classified because then there was power to control. And the moment you're, you're, you're pigeonholed into one or another of these isms, uh, then you're one of those. And there is no other conversation that can be had. And because knowledge of all of this is often controlled, until now was controlled by where modernism started in the West, uh, you were pigeonholed because you didn't really want to be accepted as part of the whole thing. Why are we not talking about architecture of the modern and contemporary period? We talk about a modernism rather than the architecture of the modern and contemporary period. So I think because the critics of that time, um, you know, previously Jim Richards and people like that who were key in uh, beginning to try and bring the sort of architecture of what they would have considered the peripheries into the mainstream. They knew they couldn't possibly do it and win by accepting it as modern. Yes, this is modern architecture. They started saying, well, it's a critical regionalism. Uh, and they started kind of, well, I mean, it's, it's not modernism, it's something else. 
and they didn't want to accept the idea that it was modern because it didn't fit into their frameworks. And also, I think, you know, in retrospect, you can look at them. I mean, they were absolutely brilliant scholars, but I don't think they really understood and looked at architecture from the perspective of the core of what modernity was about. So they kind of started saying tropical modernism. And tropical modernism is kind of, you know, that was the way they kind of described Jane Drew's work, um, when modernism directly um, adopted or adapted to the tropics. Um, fine, I mean, you know, in those areas that are tropical, you build tropical modernism. Um, it's modernism, it's modern architecture in, in, in some part of the world. Um, do you think that, it's one of the really intriguing things about power and looking at him now, or studying him now, is how little he left behind in terms of positions and statements, which is kind of wonderful because it leaves it open. Yes, I mean, that's interesting because in South Africa, we were there sort of with Jeffrey being a judge of the new constitutional court, and we were to um, give a talk at the University of Witwatersrand, and there was this huge audience of about 500 people, which I didn't believe, I couldn't believe were interested, but they were obviously interested. And there was a very, very interesting introduction with it. He said, this is, uh, but this evening, my friend Chandadaswata is going to speak with you. He knows more about my architecture than I do. What he was saying, really, was that I was able to articulate in words what his architecture was about more than he ever really cared to do. Now, how I knew more than he ever really cared to do was that there were these intermittent in interruptions to my conversation that always came because he knew exactly what his architecture was about. He wanted me to articulate it, and then he would interrupt and say, oh, but it's not like that. And then, of course, I would correct it and go on from there. He was, I think, just not interested in making those statements because, as I said earlier, he just loved building, and that's really what it was about. He just absolutely loved building and making these things and, make, and creating those potentials that I used to always talk about. To creating the potentials within a building, to, to, to imagine the moment when the monsoon blows through the reception of a hotel with the boys with their sarongs flying in the wind, rushing in to close it. He was, I think he was, as another friend of mine uh, once said, but Chandra, he was pure theatre. And this was really about the theatre of life. I mean, the wonderful thing about architects is that you're going, you're going to be able to create the theatre for life. And it was not just, it's not just when the curtain opens and closes, it's just forever. Forever we'll be watching people coming up those flights of steps and saying, ooh, what are the inabatik, so forever we'll sort of have people swirling down the stairs at the lighthouse, so forever we will have the drama of the putting in the screens at the, at the Triton. And he just loved that. And for him to make statements about it was not something he really bothered or cared to do. And this very, very, very rare statement was made when there was this conference in Bali, I think, uh, where he made very specific statements and those were published somewhere um, in a little forum. Um, and, yeah, and they were never really statements at all. They were just positions on architecture. I think there are really two pieces of writing that he's made, three pieces of writing he's made, really. But he just didn't care about that. But he, I think, quite enjoyed listening to my descriptions of it, uh, because he could then pick holes in it. So I don't think he was incapable of doing it. It was a deliberate kind of, I'm really not interested. One of the pieces that I am really looking at is the texture for the white book. It's just, it's really incredible. I think it's the most important piece of writing he did, but he's also taken into that his 1967 Times of Ceylon bit that he wrote as well which is a really, really beautiful piece as well. It's in it, It's part of that, but the Times of Ceylon Annual, I think, is somewhere. I think I might have it, or the Trust might have it. That's, I think, a real statement about what, what his architecture is about. Um, and in general conversation, if you find, ever find the, the, the 
interview I did with him. There are very, very interesting insights into why he did what he did. And, uh, well, I think he was never really interested in the theoretical aspects of, or, or making the statements about it. But once again, as Shanti Jayawardena says in her book, Jeffrey was not sort of unintelligent. He read some extraordinary books. He had some extraordinary thoughts about society because he could not have had it if he read those books. They were extraordinary writings of that period. Do you think he was interested in histories and objects? Oh, definitely. I think he just loved that. I think he just loved history. He liked the idea of what somebody else might have done. I mean, I still remember him saying, oh, and the Watergate is really about welcoming the Doge's barge from Venice. Now, obviously, he had this sort of fantasy about the Doge's barge. Not the idea of the Doge, I think it was about the barge, this beautiful object that floated. And I think he just enjoyed that. He just enjoyed thinking about that. He enjoyed thinking about why something must have been made in the way it has been made. And that's why I think he collected beautiful things. And if you look at Lockheed's collections, he's got a few contemporary paintings. Our collections of the Trust uh, include a few contemporary and modern and whatever paintings. But if you think about all the objects that we have, all the different kinds of objects, the statues, the modern objects, the toys, he just loved objects, and objects fascinated him. And that goes back to the idea that he just loved cars. You know, mechanical things fascinated him, things that move, things that... And then the histories of all of those things. Uh, and I think he just, just collected, he collected those things. Uh, and the history of it was really something he was fascinated with. shift a little bit. Um, can you describe the process of the projects that you worked on with you? Um, all of the, the granular details that um, you worked on together and, and perhaps the reasons that everything was designed from uniforms to napkins, um, but also what that process was like. Well, I think when you kind of conceive of a space and a place, when you look at a site, I think you're not just simply looking at the structure, you're looking at the life that was going to go on, which was going to be dictated by the things that you put on that site. And when I say things that I put on that site, it includes the foundations, the roof, the walls, the glass, the people, the color of the clothes that people are wearing, the ashtrays, what would you do, and all of that. So he's imagining an entire life that is going to take place on that site. Now, when you conceive of a building in that way, it is inevitable that you want to sort of get involved in everything. And everything that was seen. I don't think he was truly interested in how the water came up to the tap. That was really somebody else's business. But he was very interested in when you went to the tap and opened it, how you might reach for the soap and how you might brush your nails or how you might, all of that and what you might be looking at in terms of a flower, in terms of an object that's sitting on there holding the soap and all of that. How the pipes came in was somebody else's business and we just did that. I mean, that was something that had to happen. And it was everything else. That, so that's why, for instance, in Kandalama, you see us working at one thirty-third scale and one-to-one scale. So it's this kind of general idea of how we put things together. Somebody else will make sure it stands, somebody else will make sure the water comes to the tap. But then we get involved in everything else, from the color of the uniforms to everything, everything, everything. And, and, and I think uh, for, when you conceive of a building, that's, that's, that is inevitable. Now, how do we get on with this? It was really about, I mean, anything could inspire And I remember, um, Minal Bodhi giving him a very beautiful statue of a horse and a man on it. And simply by accident, he placed it on a stone in his sitting room. And I was sitting with him and said, so Jeffrey, what do we do about the, uh, the, the console table lamps at the back of the sofas in the tunnel in the lobby? And he was sort of thoughtful a little bit, and he said, oh, well, perhaps we can just put a big cold light behind something like that. 
Now, at that point, we never managed to make them, but he made a sample of that light, which we have in the trust collection. And years later, I knew that's what he wanted. I managed to put that into the Pandemon lobbies because that was a great idea that came at that point. Because the Kandalama was being conceived as a very minimalist place, where hardly anything was going to be seen. And so here's the way he sort of invented a light fitting for the Kandalama. And often they were inspired by objects that he collected. And that's why the history of objects is important to him. Because if you look at the light fitting, the original light fitting, at the blue water, on the blue water writing table in bedrooms, it was a little game that used to sit on his uh, coffee table uh, in his house upstairs, uh, where it was a triangle, and there were magnets on the triangle, and there were three, there was a tripod, and hanging from this tripod was another magnet, which was a south magnet to the north magnets that were on this triangular plate. And if you move this, it would just move very, very quickly with the repelling of the north and south. Now he's quite amused by this. And when he had to think of a table lamp, he said, oh, what happens if you just do it? And that became the table lamp for him. Because thinking about something, he, he would also imagine other things that he had seen before. And then he would bring them out from the recesses of his mind. And then he saw these things sitting in the spaces that he saw. Although he probably didn't see it in detail, he, he saw what should be there. And then something else would trigger off the design idea. And he was constantly working on that. And, and with Kandilama, he does bring in the three main co-collaborators. I mean, I think he brought in the three collaborators all the time. And certainly with, with the work I was doing with him in Kandilama, he does. And curiously, it's not Ina's batiks he's interested in this guy. And, and that's also because but soon after 1991, Ina had set up this workshop for the boys, who were the brothers and sons of the women who worked for her, uh, who were being threatened with whatever by the JDP and all of that. Um, and Ina had managed to get the Canadians and the Americans to help, or the, and the British to help her set up these woodworking shops. And she did need work for them. And in many ways, Jeffrey felt obliged to, to, to make that work. And, um, and Kandalama was a minimal place in his mind, and I don't think he, he ever saw the riot of Ina's colour sitting there anywhere. And it was easy for us, for instance, sitting in the office and saying, oh, I want to go to Ina Batik somewhere. And I think there was, at a very, very early stage, that the possibility of having an Ina Batik in the Kashapa room. But still, in Jeffrey's mind, it wasn't really something that worked. So he found an alternative thing to engage her with. And he said, look, you know, can we do something like some giant's toy? And this giant's toy became that extraordinary elephant. And then we created those human figures, which were sort of, because Kandanama was conceived to be something that's kind of in the jungle, slightly on the edge of, of, of safari, uh, and, and there would be these sort of primitive cultures that you might encounter if you went into those forests. And for Ina, this was kind of, it then sort of fermented a whole lot of ideas, such as, oh my God, Jeffrey, we can do something. And of course, at that time, in 1990, I think there was an exhibition when Ina had made this wonderful chess set, which we have in the Trust Collection. So I can quite see Jeffrey saying, Ina, why don't we do large figures of these? And then that's what's happened. But those little chess sets, the chess men, being made into life-size figures in wood, which are, which dot the corridors of Kabbalah. And and this elephant, um, which, what happens if you put wheels to one of your elephants, Ina? And Ina had invented this sort of more modern version of the Aliyah, which had been painted. And then she came up with the tiny little example, which is still in the trust collection. And then she did the middle example, just to try it. And then we did the huge thing that sits in the Kanchana Lounge. And then what to do with the, with the, with the, with the sample? And Jeffrey said, let's buy it. It's the baby elephant. So we have these two elephants sitting there. With Lucky, absolutely, it was really about the owl. He needed a sculpture. He needed this, this creature that was about to fly off into the landscape, which was a kind of comment about the openness of the space and the vastness of the landscape that it was looking at. It was his owl, this huge thing, ready to fly out into the, into the landscape. And so he got Lucky and said, at the top of the stairs. 
there is a drawing either somewhere in the trust or God knows where it is, but it's lucky says he doesn't have it, but uh, we had given a drawing of the staircase and then lucky did the drawing of the owl in poster colors onto it and said for Jeffrey and signed it or for Mintaka and signed it or something like that. But that's, I haven't seen it. That was in the, in the, in the German exhibition. And so Lucky then went on to kind of make the owl. And then the question of what to do behind the bed came, came about. And yes, it seemed obvious, let's do an inabati. Chandler would have said, just do an inabati. So easy to say. But Jeffrey had other ideas. And he sat with Lucky and said, why don't you do a, do a map? Because everyone's asking me to do this horrible map, of a fire map. Uh, and we never put a fire map. Neither did we. So the idea was that you would do this map and then you would mark which room, which never happened. But then, of course, we had this wonderful lucky with this owl soaring over. It's almost like the wings of an owl um, that was about to bear. And then, of course, there's Barbara, who designed this extraordinary tapestry um, around the, the terracotta sculpture that Jeffrey and I went to Chiang Mai and picked up from a man called William Warren, who was running an Atlantic shop in the Chiang Mai of those days. It's not the Chiang Mai now, it was just a, I mean, it's a sort of place where if you open the window, I remember going there with him and we were in a tiny little hotel by the river and then we, we opened the window and there was literally a wall of mosquitoes that came and hit us. <laughs> it was really funny. And then Jeffrey's description, I fell over because the wall of mosquitoes came and dropped. <laughs> Uh, so we bought these terracotta things, which are sort of reproductions from Angkor. And this was the sort of, you know, churning of the Red Sea. And it has to do with the lake and all of that. And uh, so we thought that might be a nice object. But obviously it was too small in that space. So Jeffrey thought there needs to be something that backed it. And so he sort of went to, 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 to Barbara and said, can you do me a depiction of the lake? And this extraordinary sculpture, this, this extraordinary tapestry. It's the second one that's there at the moment. The first one really faded out. This one. This is fading, so I'm hoping that we'll be able to replace that at some point. And Barbara did such a wonderful job. Uh, it's spectacular. I think it's just a really spectacular modern weaving. Uh, reminds me so much of all these sort of, you know, Bauhaus weavers. Uh, like a lot of other work, but this is particularly like that. The subtleties of color, but still the strength of the design and uh, and the lines are just spectacular. And uh, yes, and all those collaborators came into place once again, but perhaps in a way, although he did build three hotels after that, I think the Catalan really was this one song to say, to say, this is how things can be in the future. Just talking to the future. Uh, everything else kind of stepped back a little bit, I think. Uh, except perhaps at the Anantara where he was trying to push a, a new idea. The others were kind of, you know, looking back at some of his own work. They were very different, but they were still looking back. But the Kandalama, he was just, and it's wonderful, I mean, to have, to, to, to now be working at the bend of the beach to understand how they worked then, and then to have worked with them on the Kandalama, doing uh, similar things. It, it's, a, it, it's a huge privilege to see these people and how they sort of, really, and when I asked them, did you all sort of want to change and make a style and, do something about Sri Lankan style, is it absolutely not? We just carried on doing what we think was the right thing to do. And they were, they really sort of, I think, bounced ideas of each other, they spoke with each other, uh, just for the sake of doing it. It wasn't because they wanted to have fame and fortune and create a whole sort of movement. We now recognize it as a movement, we can see it as a movement, but at that time it was just doing what they felt was right. And I think that's something that we sometimes forget. We want to do grand things. <laughs> so the last set of questions are a little bit about your practice and tying it back to that. Um, are there things from your days at the firm that you try and maintain in your own practice? I think both Murad and I, having worked there, don't really have a formal practice. We, we, we give a lot of freedom to the people who are working with us, want to make decisions, to, in terms of just the office atmosphere. I don't think we, we, need, we both of us didn't know a practice that was formal, that everyone had to dress up and come and sit at a computer and work from 
nine o'clock to 12 o'clock and then break for one hour lunch. I mean, our office just comes in when they want, they have coffee when they want. They might all come out of the courtyard and have lunch when they want. And that's the way we worked and uh, in Jeffrey's office. So I think in many ways, MICD is a sort of continuation of that very loose, easy way of working. It's hugely, um, uh, in many ways, hugely inefficient. And uh, both of us have tried to bring order over the last 20 years, but uh, absolutely failed miserably. So we haven't really even tried recently. Let it be, this is going to be that way. And, and why change it after 20 years? It's, it's, that's the way the practice has worked. So I think that's the most enduring of those legacies, the idea of the way the office works. And just like Jeffrey's office, we don't have, uh, we don't have an engineer, we don't have quantity surveyors, it's just designers. And um, we have all of those old-fashioned relationships with consultants uh, who respect your work and, and, and they will come and work with you. And we have enough of those people who are willing to do it with us. Uh, and again, we feel that's the way we conduct ourselves with the professionals. And, and, and that's, again, something that I learned, uh, learned from, from Jeffrey. If there's any discipline at all, and that, for me, would have come from Angela's practice, if there's anything at all, and, and that I would, I would give. But at the moment, I think our, the, the biggest legacy is the way the office works. Is there anything else in the way we, we, we do things? I mean, Murad and I, Jeffrey was very much an individual person, and so are we. Uh, so we don't ever sit together and discuss designs. We do our thing. Um, and in, but in many ways, because we have similar background, there is a sort of thread that runs through a bit about much, many, many of our projects. Um, but we don't sit together and work. And in many ways, the fact that I have a partner means that we were able to take some of the work uh, that we did take and get at the big hotels, for instance, would never have happened if I was a movie, which would have been much more difficult. Uh, and also the, all the other work that I do for the Trust, for the World Heritage Foundation, for all of those other things, writing the books and so on, couldn't possibly have happened if I was on my own. Because I know that I can sort of, you know, swan off to New York next week, and there would be Murad somehow signing those checks and making sure it carries on. Um, and we can afford to have office managers, we can afford to have, if I was alone, I just couldn't reach that. So I think, yeah, it was sensible to have that what you did. When you were working with Jeffrey, do you ever remember him printing about the business side of things? Never. Never. Absolutely never, because I think he was very clever at business, much cleverer than Murad and I, I think. Um, he never really ever fretted about it. No. Last question. Yes. Um, it's, are there any questions you wish you mentioned one? Questions that you wish you asked him? I just wish I asked him what his life was about before he became an architect. There are moments when he talks about it. I mean, there are, there are sort of little, you know, how, his, how he had a guardian who would smoke up, who would give him a cigarette if he had been a good boy, and a cigar if he'd been a really bad person, and so on. So there were these really funny little anecdotes that he would talk about. Um, because he's the one who was his guardian, who gave him the money. And then this sort of vague notion. So I, I once asked him, Jeffrey, what were you doing during the war? And he said, oh, we were in Venice when war broke out, when Germany invaded Poland. So what did you do? You must have... He said, no, um, we all decided to go to Budapest. And I was like, what, are you, what were you doing? What were you thinking? And he said, no, we were all sort of having great fun, and he described gondolas and all of this kind of thing. Uh, really a scene straight out of Bride's set or something like that. And then he said, we then took the train to Budapest. And then he got a call. They, he was tracked down to Budapest by his guardian, and the guardian was very, very firm. He said, I have managed to get you on one of the last refugee trains from Europe. You will get on it. And he took this, one of those last trains that went on Europe as Hitler was invaded country after country through Switzerland, the last bits of un, unfallen France, and manages to get back to, to, to England just before the war really hits its peak. So I said, what were you doing? He said, no, he sat in Cambridge, just watching the fires of London in the distance. 
And so I just wish I pushed that a little bit more and said, what exactly were you doing? Were you reading? Were you thinking? Were you... But I think they just simply carried on with life. I mean, for five years, there was a war. So I just wish I had asked him more about that and, and what he did. Who were his friends? What are these people? Uh, what were you thinking? Um, because it was, in many ways, it was, I was going to be asking him what he might have been doing at my age then, I have stopped. Um, but, I, but I wish I had. Uh, because that would have been quite an interesting insight into the person and what made him who he was. Because that was obviously a very important part of his life. Uh, so that's something that I wish, wish I had, had sort of even more kind of, I recognize this one. Do you know who the Guardian was? Mm -hmm. Do you know who the Guardian was? I don't. I'm sure it's somewhere, but he mentioned a name, but I really can't remember that. But obviously he must have been a friend of Mama, and um, because there are stories of how his father was taken somewhere for treatment when his illness was, and, and they obviously went to England from time to time, and they had friends. So this must have been one of them. And there's this really funny story about how he, he hated to roll and send cats where he went to. was really very important. To this day, I think most of the rowing team came which come from St. Catherine's. And he was tall and he was forced to get up at four o'clock in the morning and go and roll in midwinter. And he hated the idea. He wrote to Mama and said, this is really terrible. Can you have it stopped? So the mother wrote to the dean's college, <laughs> the, the, the chief of the, the master of the college, and said, I didn't send my son to row. I sent him to learn English. Can you please excuse him? <laughs> and Jeffrey sort of said this really, really funny. And, uh, and, and apparently he was excused from rowing. And I don't think he did any other sport ever. He has never swum in a swimming pool, he said. But he designed the most beautiful so swimming pools in the world. Not even in those places. Absolutely not, except for the one in his garden. Sat. The little, we sat in the water. <laughs> so it's really quite funny. I mean, here was this. But has he swam in the lakes? I mean, he went to all this. I don't know. I, I don't think he could swim. No wonder he didn't want to row. <laughs> <laughs> We would like to thank the trustees of the Jeffrey Bauer Trust and our generous patrons and sponsors for the Bauer 100 program. This podcast is copyrighted to the Jeffrey Bauer Trust, all rights reserved. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at archive at gbtrust.net. We would love to hear from you. To find more resources on Jeffrey Bauer, attend our events or volunteer, you can visit our website or follow us on social media. Please hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to leave us a review because this helps people find us more. Until next time, take care.